0: Wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.
1: From the Evening Standard in London, I'm David Marsland, and this is The Leader. Let's have some fun. Some of the most powerful stories ever told have come from horror. They live in our psyche. A bit of lightning and an organ conjures images of gothic castles and vampires. Bram Stoker's Dracula is one of the two great totems of the genre. The other is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein.
0: Oh, it's alive! It's alive! It's alive! It's alive!
1: If you've never seen Universal's 1931 movie version of the story, give it a while, it's much scarier than you might think. So is the novel. Powered by Shelley's immortal, incredibly forward-thinking central theme, can humans create artificial life? And what happens if we do?
0: The monster created by a man they called Mad is turned loose to strike terror into the hearts of men.
1: The writer Jeanette Winterson's been thinking about this for a while. A couple of years back, she released Frankenstein, inspired by Shelley's story, but also exploring artificial intelligence. Her new book, Twelve Bytes, takes that further with a series of essays asking, "How did we get here, and where are we going?" Some of it is quite scary. Jeanette's appearing at the Evening Standard Stories Festival in association with Netflix in September. And she's with me now. Jeanette, I expect when most people think about AI, they're probably thinking about Jeff Bezos and Amazon's Alexa or Elon Musk and Tesla's self-driving cars. But actually, this idea of creating a new life doesn't belong to billionaire blokes, does it? This goes way back to Mary Shelley and Frankenstein.
2: Yes, that's exactly right, David. Um, And when I was rereading Frankenstein two two years ago... um, I realized that it was much more than a gothic novel or a novel about women's education or the the world's most most famous monster, that it was a message in a bottle to the future. Because she, she had this extraordinary vision that a new life form, which is what Victor Frankenstein creates, would depend on electricity which was an entirely new force then. It wasn't in any practical use. but And although she could only conceive of the life forms being made out of the discarded body parts of the graveyard that Victor Frankenstein puts together, she knew that in order to set it going, it was going to have to be driven by electricity, which is astonishing, because computational technology is entirely dependent uh, on electricity. Look, it's moving. She was a visionary, but nobody could see that until we came along really 200 years later and, and for the first time could read this as thinking, wow, you know, we're creating a new life form, not out of the discarded body parts of the graveyard, but out of the zeros and ones of code. And I found that insight so fascinating. And I, that's why I thought I'd like to pursue this AI story. Back to its beginnings, which I see as uh, the early 19th century, the early 1800s, Mary Shelley writing Frankenstein. Um, And of course, Mary Shelley's great friendship with Lord Byron, whose daughter was Ada Lovelace, um, the world's first computer programmer, even though she was writing programs for a computer that never had been built because her great mate Charles Babbage couldn't actually build it. Those guys really got it. And I thought, I wonder if people would be interested in this story so that we could see it more of a stretch of time and art which fits in with the burgeoning Industrial Revolution and think, well, we're only talking... 250 years and look how far we've come you know and I know acceleration is the buzzword of our time but this is really tremendous I'm frightening I'm fascinating and all of those things isn't it
1: yeah the, the those aspects of how far can artificial intelligence go are to me really really interesting and I was Reading 12 Bytes and reading that Ada Lovelace thought there were limitations on it, that AI would never be, or computers, she would have been talking about, would never be able to originate their own material, I think is fascinating. Because when we're connecting this chat up with the Stories Festival, which we've just announced the launch up for, could AI, Ada didn't believe it was possible, but could AI write its own completely original story?
2: Yes, I, I believe so. Um, at present, not so because all AI is still a tool and we use it as a tool. Um, so it, it can do some funky stuff. You know, I don't know if you've ever been on the website Bot Poet, which does fake poems uh, alongside poems that you might think are written by a bot. So they use things like E.E. E. Cummings or Gertrude Stein and people say, that's definitely a bot, it makes no sense. And, uh, and of course, with music, we know that bots can do all kinds of things. You know, the musician David Cope in America got his, his programme to do Bach chorales that people couldn't really distinguish from the original. At the moment, if you're made of meat, if you're a biological being, we know how creativity works. But what we have to say is, well, is that the only way creativity can work? And in terms of storytelling, we'd have to say no, because every religious person on the planet believes that their God is a non-biological being who created everything, um, and is really not concerned about being made of meat like we are. So we've already accepted that there is a high level of creativity, which is not about human beings, Therefore, I think we will be able to accept what happens when, if AI develops uh, consciousness, which is, is going to be the interesting part, can self-reflect, as well as just you know, producing something which is really a kind of an amalgam of all the data that's been inputted.
1: This idea that AI can, I suppose, never feel emotion but understand what emotion is and therefore write a story which can affect humans in an emotional way. That's really interesting because if if it can do that, if it can manipulate us through a story, Jeanette what else can it do?
2: Oh, it'll soon work us out. Um, I think, you know, human beings, are, we know how easy human beings are to manipulate. It's what the advertising industry works on. Um, it's now what, you know, all the advanced algorithms of Facebook and co are working on to try and convince us to like things we don't like, to want things we don't want. You know, we're gullible, we're vain, um, we're susceptible. That's what humans are. So an AI is soon going to figure that out. It already has figured it out <laughs> in terms of itself as a tool. Um, So manipulating us, either for good or ill, won't be difficult. So the emotion that we feel when we're confronted by a wonderful work of art, and it's different for everybody, you know, whatever it is, will we feel that if it's generated by an AI system? If we don't know, probably. But also the question is, will AI want to bother? We, I, I, what I fear most is that there'll be a kind of apartheid system where we go on doing stuff for us, and AI goes on looking at us rather self-indulgently and thinking, you know, silly little homo sapiens, they're just a lower life form. We'll just talk to each other, you know? That could easily happen. You know, they might write as the equivalent of children's stories. <laughs> Go and read this and, until you grow up and you can think in code like we do. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Let's do some ads now. And while they're on, have a look at the Stories Festival lineup. You'll find that at stories.standard.co.uk. We're back with Jeanette Winterson after these.
0: wherever you get your podcast, Thanks for listening.
1: Would you as a writer and as someone who is interested in AI, if the opportunity came up as an experiment to collaborate with AI as a, as a writing partner, would you do that? I mean, you, you use. I guess we use things like spell check and stuff. That's a form of AI already, isn't it? But would you go all, Would you go all in and go? Yeah, I'll write a book with a computer.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I just think that programs like you know Grammarly, and there are lots of programs out there that help illiterate young people. I don't know what they've been doing in school all their life, but they help them to <laughs> parse a sentence and do something which, roughly speaking, looks like grammar. And it's very formulaic and disappointing. So. You wouldn't want to do that. Um, you know, there's enough churn out anyway, aren't there, from creative writing schools, people writing exactly the same thing anyway, with or without an AI. So, but what what would interest me, rather like the Brian Eno thing is, you know, is there a program here that I can play with that allows me to jump off on in different ideas? Of course, because the key is always, certainly in creative life, you know this, you have to be open-minded. You have to be curious. You have to try things out and not prejudge. Uh, and then I think surprising things could happen. So, yeah, I mean, certainly I would. But, you know, back in in the 1840s in Punch magazine, they were having spoofs of what they called the the, the patent novel writer that Babbage would build. Um, so the Victorians, you know, only could ever have a three-volume novel because they had lots of leisure time because there was no internet, would suddenly be able to churn out loads of three-volume novels. <laughs> and they thought this was a great joke. So it's not as though this is new thinking. It's been as soon as right back to the beginning of any idea about um, machine-made anything. Because you have to think about the Industrial Revolution and, and really think about the enthusiasm there that they had, thinking a machine can do anything in the end. And Ada was really, she, not everybody thought like Ada, that a machine wouldn't be able to originate things. Ada thought like that because her father was Lord Byron. And, you know, poets were gods. And this is Shakespeare's land. But lots of people did not think like Ada in you know, a Babbage didn't. Um, and that's why Alan Turing later on uh, raised what he called Lady Lovelace's objection in a paper in 1950 where he said, well, is she right? And he decided that she wasn't right but that she was wrong for very interesting reasons. So at that moment, 100 years later, he's engaging with this dead genius, sort of dusting her down, talking to her across time um, and coming to a different conclusion but one that really is based out of the the very interesting arguments and points that she makes. Because she does agree, she says, if you want what she calls program music, uh, anything that that is repetitive or that can be copied, she said AI can do. And we know that because we've seen it. Where she was taking issue was exactly what you're asking, what humans call original um, imaginative thought. But even that is a relatively controversial idea. And it, we don't even think about it till the romantic poets come along so much. You know, people were not thinking in the same way. They all assumed, like when you, when you say, when you read Chaucer, um, everybody liked to assume back then that there was an authority before them and that they weren't originating things because that was seen as rather suspect to be originating. You were meant to have some authority from the past on which to build your work, and that, that gave it credence. And it's not until Wordsworth comes along with the prelude and he says, you know what, it's all about me. You know, that's the first example of autofiction. It's Wordsworth, then followed by the Romantics, saying, never mind the past, never mind the precedent,
1: it's all about me. You spoke earlier about the Industrial Revolution and kind of how... Not just actually the the, the employers, but the employees kind of embraced it and thought it would free them up to give them more time and it would would be this great thing, but it didn't quite happen like that. Are we at a risk of rushing into AI without thinking through what the actual consequences are going to be?
2: Totally. We've already done it. We've rushed into it Um, and the consequences are with us. I mean, I wouldn't like to work in an Amazon fulfillment warehouse. Um, and you know, you, when, you get, when you hear people talking about it and then you look back at uh, verbatim records from the factory system in the early 1800s, it's the same despair. Um, and it's not just despair about conditions, it's the despair about literally the inhumanity of the machine. So you know in the Amazon warehouse, you have to keep up, everything is tagged. Even going to the bathroom is called a timeout task. I mean, what demon in hell called having a pee a time-out task? Um, so it's the same thing. So just as the, those, those hands, as they were factory hands, felt tied to the machine because it never stopped. We see it now in this so, so, supposedly AI utopia nirvana, where the, the, the algorithm is saying to you, now go to this shelf, now pack that shelf. No longer Humans like to be master of their own destiny mistress of their own life. And what we've done is now we've created another factory system, Hell, which I would argue is worse um, because it, it it has rudimentary intelligence behind it. You can't escape the bloody algorithm. You can't escape the CCTV. You know, even now David, if we wanted to run away, it would be quite difficult. We'd have to leave our phone at home, pay in cash, go somewhere where there are no CCTV cameras. You know, it's, we're going to be tracked within about an hour.
1: No one takes cash anymore, Jeanette, so we'd be in real
2: trouble. That is a very clever move. This has nothing to do with criminals and money laundering. It's to do with knowing not just what you're buying but actually where you are what you're doing and when you're doing it but of course once you've got a neural implant in your brain which will come quite soon of course it's a two-way door it's not just that you can connect seamlessly you know without having to mess with your phone or your device you can be connected to seamlessly and at that point it's over
1: if we do come to our senses so to speak AI is not necessarily a bad thing, is it? It's not necessarily going to take over the world. It could be transformative, but in a good way.
2: Definitely. I mean, look, at present it is a tool. Um, It's an incredible tool. It might develop into something more. It might develop into um, an intelligence that works alongside us. uh, And then we see what happens. But, yeah, it's a huge chance, you know, to, to... revolutionize work again you soon won't need call centers because once AI does pass the Turing test which is when you can't tell whether you're speaking to a bot or a person and frankly we often cannot tell now can we because persons are behaving like bots they're all reading from a script in the call center and they say, you know I'm sorry to hear that how can I help you you know a bot can do that it'd be fine so there's all sorts of ways in which it could make our life all of our lives better and easier help us solve a lot of problems if it if it stays in the hands of the few if it's about greed and power then it's not going to be that and so as usual human beings have yet another chance um, to move ahead to manage humanity differently to help solve our problems with climate change you know the biggest threat to all of us right now will we do it or will we just blow the whole thing up and we'll be back to sticks and stones and fighting for food and water resources? I think it's 50-50. I honestly do. could go either way.
1: Jeanette Winterson will be talking about the ethics of AI with Brian Christian at the Evening Standard Stories Festival in association with Netflix on September 25th. Head to stories.standard.co.uk to book tickets and have a look at the rest of the lineup. Writers include Anita Rani, Candice Braithwaite, Ed Balls, and I'm looking forward to Jed Mercurio, the creator of Line of Duty. That's the leader podcast. We're back on Monday at 4 p.m.